1: I'm Dr. Sarah Patterson, and you're listening to Gospel Tangents. It's the
2: best source for Mormon history, science, and theology, and first daily Mormon history podcast. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to have Dr. Sarah Patterson on the show. She's the author of a new book on the September 6 and the struggle for the soul of Mormonism. So, it'd be a great uh, book to put under the tree for your Mormon history lovers. And we're going to talk first about uh, how she got involved with this, and it involves Dr. Michael Quinn, and uh, so. The question that we'd like to ask is, is his story tragic or triumph? So we'll let Dr. Patterson answer that question. You won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. Welcome to Gospel Tangents. I'm excited to have an amazing, at least new to me, historian. Could you go ahead and tell us who you are and where you teach?
1: Sure. I'm Sarah Patterson, and I teach at Hanover College in Southern Indiana.
2: Southern Indiana. So are you a Hoosier?
1: I guess so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, one of the things I always like to do is I like to get people's backgrounds. Um, where did you get your bachelor's and master's and PhD and all that stuff?
1: I received my undergraduate degree from Denison University in Ohio, and then I went to Claremont Graduate School for my doctorate.
2: Oh, was that with Patrick Mason? Uh,
1: that was, I was there before Patrick oh, Mason.
2: Oh, so Dr. Bushman.
1: No, I was I studied with Ann Taves, and then oh. um, on my discer- dissertation committee, Jan Ships was a member.
2: Oh wow, so, that's cool. Yeah, I I, I I just thought it was Bushman and then Patrick Mason. I didn't know Ann Taves was in there.
1: I was there when they were fundraising for that chair. So okay. Yeah, oh, was Ann quite. before Richard Bushman then? Um, she yeah, I want to say she overlapped with him one year, and then she went to UC Santa Barbara.
2: Oh wow! I did not know that. Yeah. Wow, so you're an old timer then <laughs> in Mormon studies,
1: right? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Except for now, is it, is it? Did you
2: major in Mormon studies, or was it just religious studies? Or tell us more about your your.
1: Um, I, my degrees in history, um, okay. but I specialized in religious history in the United States, and so um, Mormonism has always been an interest of mine.
2: Okay, so because you're you're not Mormon, I am not. And so, how did you get interested in Mormon studies?
1: It was just through the study of religion in the United States. And okay. um, in reading about um, the early church, I was just kind of captivated by the story.
2: Okay. Yeah. I, I talked to Christina Rosetti. Do you know Christina? Yeah. She said that uh, kind of like Parley P. Pratt, she opened up Rough Stone Rolling and she read it all night. <laughs> Did you have any experiences like that?
1: I don't think I don't think I would characterize it that way, but that's great. (laughs) It was more of a slow growing interest in me.
2: Okay, okay. So has that just like did you when you were when you were six years old? You probably didn't say I'm going to grow up as a religious studies scholar.
1: I did not. How how
2: did that development happen?
1: Um, in college, I took a required religion class. And it just opened my eyes. Um, I've always been interested, I think, in why people do do enact the the ways that they do. And so um, the religion class just helped me see religion as a motivator for people. And I was just hooked at that point. Okay. Yeah.
2: And so uh, do you have any other interests besides Mormonism?
1: Yeah, um I'm interested more broadly in gender and sexuality and religion, um and then also in material culture and um sacred spaces. Okay. And so um one one of my first um major projects was about a piece of outsider art in Southern California. Um and I did a project, it's out in the middle of the desert, and so I interviewed people who are coming to visit that space called Salvation Mountain, and I was just interested in how the artists and the people who visited created sacred space together.
2: Okay. Well, very good. And so then you got your first job in Indiana, and that's why you're there now, is that right?
1: Yeah, it was my first um, tenure track job. Okay. Yeah. All right. And that's why I'm there now.
2: All right. Well, it's interesting. So you've written a new book. Why don't you go ahead and, and show everybody the, the book and sure. uh, tell us how you got involved in this book.
1: Am I holding it up correctly? You're doing a very good okay. job. <laughs> tell you how I got so involved So for those in who aren't books. watching, what's yes. it called? Ah, the September 6th and the Struggle for the Soul of Mormonism. Okay. Um, I would say a couple of things. Um. Perhaps most recently, um, I was asked to be part of a conference maybe two years ago now, um, that Ben Park helped put together that was um honoring the life and contributions of Mike Quinn.
2: Oh, I was was that was here at the University of Utah, right? Yes, it was. I yeah. was at that conference.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, I gave a paper there. <laughs> 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 and studying more about Quinn, who is somebody that I met in graduate school because he was a friend of one of my professors, um, just really drew me into this time period in new ways. And so when Barbara Jones-Brown at Signature talked to me about doing a book more broadly about the September 6th, I was really excited to for that opportunity.
2: Okay. So Michael Quinn kind of drew you in, and then you expanded it to the others, That's huh?
1: right. That's right. I, you know, I'd known about the September 6th for a long time, but, um, but, yeah, reading more about Quinn's life just really drew me in.
2: Well, it must be interesting. Um, you know, Mormons were, were often very insular, and so um, w- when you first heard about the September 6th, Uh, I I mean, I don't know if you have a religious background, like if, if you're Orthodox, whatever, Baptist or whatever. Um, Does it look really strange that this church out here in Utah is excommunicating a bunch of intellectuals? How, How did you come across that story? and What were your reactions?
1: I think that I had been studying the history of Christianity for long enough that it wasn't shocking to me that a church would do that. I mean, I think that religious institutions, that's one of the ways that they can manage the boundaries um, in their communities. And so um, I think it was intriguing to me that it's something that was happening so recently um, because you tend to think of excommunications as a method of the past, though they certainly... Galileo. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking that far back. But yeah, so I, I think that um, excommunications, the, that, that story kind of draws people in, I think, um, because it's such a severe measure.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. You know, I have a, a friend... A Jewish friend, and he told me, "You cannot be excommunicated from Judaism, even for murder, because uh, under their rule or logic, I guess God is to be your judge." Mm-hmm. And so, Christianity hasn't followed that same right. <laughs> tact. Um, I mean, the Catholic Church. Um, are, but are there other? Are you familiar with other uh, churches that uh, excommunicate people for not following the pure doctrine or whatever?
1: I think most of the examples I know of are within Christianity. Okay. Yeah.
2: But I mean, the Catholic church, I guess is big and I guess they have got the Salem witch trials maybe. Yeah. Are there other examples besides those even more recent? Oh,
1: sure. uh, There's a Catholic theologian um, whose name I will probably butcher because I've only ever read it. I don't, I haven't heard it, Um, but it's, Uh, His last name is Balasariah, and he uh, wrote a book about Mary that's really fascinating and was um, disciplined and, I think, excommunicated for it. Oh, okay. Yeah. But that was
2: another Catholic example, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, relatively recently, yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah, I just... You know, I, I wish excommunication would go away, personally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it doesn't seem like, like it has, at least in the LDS church. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how, Mike, how Michael Quinn kind of drew you in and then how, how it expanded into the September 6th?
1: Sure. I was able to read um, portions of his journal and memoir when I was working on um, my presentation for the Quinn Conference And that ultimately wasn't what I focused on in my presentation. Um, What I focused on was how we today narrate Quinn's life Mm -hmm. um, and what I think is kind of a problematic way of telling his life story um, that talks about him as a rising star. uh, And then after his excommunication, frames his life as a series of losses Uh, And I was pushing it back against that narrative because I think it uses the church's lens to read his life story. Okay. Um, And so part of what I was looking at was how Quinn constructed, reconstructed his family and restructured his family, how he created community in places like affirmation um, and how while we may think that um, his life didn't didn't live up to understandings of family that um, might be ideal and he didn't ever find a long-term partner, um, that his life wasn't a series of losses, I was saying, that we don't need to read him as a tragic figure, Um, that we can certainly see that there were hardships and tragedies in his life, but also acknowledge that he continued to live a rich life after his excommunication.
2: You know, and I'm glad you, you went there because that's that's something um, that I think those of us who are still in the LDS church look at, you know, here he is. He's one of the most popular teachers at BYU. Um, everything's going really well. He's had some experiences with President Kimball. Um, and then he gets excommunicated and then he loses his job at BYU. Mm-hmm. He's never able to get another tenure track position mm-hmm. anywhere. It seems like he's kind of uh forced out of some positions. I know he had I think he taught at Yale for a year or two mm-hmm. and I think Arizona State maybe as well. But it does look, you know, from an inside perspective that he has had a series of losses and that this you know, it was it was pretty devastating to him, and so it's interesting to for to hear from you to say we need to look at this from an, in another way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know that in in some respects, uh, among the more critical crowd, he's kind of seen as a hero, and a lot of his writings have kind of triumphed in a way, mm-hmm. and and so he's kind of a I hate to use the word ex Mormon hero in a way, but he's still a believer. Uh, up up through his death. A very, very strong believer. So uh, tell us us more about why you're pushing back against that narrative that I just gave.
1: Well, I think, um, as I said briefly, that it uses the church's measuring stick of what um, a life is supposed to be. And so I think that um, we need to kind of expand our understanding of what uh, a rich life can be beyond that set of expectations because he continued to have faith um, and he talked about having a fulfilling life. He he talked about himself as a mystic Mm -hmm. um, and as a member of a church of one, Um, but he talked about how he continued to have a very close relationship with God. And continue to feel <clears throat> connected to the spirit, and I think that we have to include that in this story, even when um, his relationship was with the institution was so painful, mm-hmm. um, because it, it's a mixed bag, right? Yeah, and um, and I think too often, sometimes to try to get him into the category of martyr. Right. Um, The last part of his life. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people do see him as a martyr. Um, But I think too often to kind of get him into that narrative, people talk about his life as a series of losses and things that he lost because he was willing to stand up and speak the truth. Um, But one of the things I talked about was, you know, once he left the church, he was able to ask research questions that he wanted to ask, right? And there's a kind of freedom that he had um, in his intellectual life that opened up. Um, And so I I, I just think that there's complexity that gets lost sometime in forcing him into that martyr story.
2: Okay. Can can we look at... uh Could we call his life a life of abundance? And if so, what would be some of those abundant things? I mean, you did mention he could study more freely. Mm -hmm. Are are there other things besides that? Well,
1: I think his spiritual life. um, I think people tend to talk about, focus on the disintegration of his family um, when he, years after he came out to his wife, um, and don't talk about the fact that they restructured their family. And so he spent his holidays with his ex-wife and his children. Um, So I think uh, a broader understanding of family is necessary for thinking about his relationships.
2: So even though his marriage went away, he was still able to embrace his ex-wife and family and and have a good life with them.
1: Yeah. Which is pretty unusual. Yeah, she wanted him to be part of his children's lives, and he was. So, Mm -hmm. yeah.
2: Well, very good. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Sarah Patterson. She's the author of The September 6th and the Struggle for the Soul of Mormonism. So make sure you get this book and put it under your tree for your Mormon uh, history lovers. In our next conversation, we're going to talk about BYU professors who are denied tenure.
1: David Knowlton was a professor at BYU, um, along with Cecilia Contra Farr um, and um, Gail Houston. And all three of them in 1992 um, were up for review um, and um, for their teaching positions. And the question was whether they would have continuing status. And all of Which all is th-
2: like tenure in a way?
1: The closest to tenure that you can get at BYU. Right. Yeah. Um, And all three of them um, were denied continuing status and so had one more year in their positions um, and then asked to leave.
2: If you'd like to hear the entire interview uncut, subscribe on either Patreon or at GospelTangents.com. For just $5 a month, you can hear the entire audio uninterrupted. On our $10 tier, if you'd like to see the whole video, you can see that uh, either on youtube.com slash gospel tangents, or I've got a special Facebook group devoted for uh, full videos. So subscribe at gospeltangents.com and uh, sign up for just $10 a month. For $20 a month, if you'd like to get some bonus content, uh, maybe some of the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor, you can sign up for that. And then if you'd like to talk to me for $100 a month, we'll we'll do a monthly phone call on something like Zoom, and you can ask me anything you want. So thanks again. Also, don't forget about the merch, mugs, t-shirts, hats, things like that. I'm trying to get the ties up there. Hopefully, I can get up up there. And uh, thanks again for watching Gospel Tangents. And click here for
1: some more videos. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes,
0: ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines.